Matthew chapter 6 is our passage. We're thinking about God's kingdom. We're thinking about God's will and how that ties in with prayer. So I want to get your mind thinking in the direction of kingdoms and empires and powerful nations. And I want to just sort of acknowledge some of what we think of as great kingdoms from an earthly perspective and then maybe try to deconstruct that a little bit and back in to this biblical idea of God's kingdom. So if you come on Wednesday nights, if you're here on Sundays, you know that one of the things I like, I like reading these things, I like thinking about these things, I like debating these things, are lists, lists of the greatest whatever. And so I just did some looking this week, did some reading, had a couple of books in my office, uh, checked out a few online sources, which are always reliable, and came across some of the greatest empires in world history. So I'm just going to put some of these up. They're listed on your notes and tell you a a thing or two about each of these empires. The Portuguese Empire. Uh, Many say this was the first truly global empire. Um... It began in 1415. The heyday of the Portuguese Empire did not uh, last very, very long. But in technical terms, the empire hung on from 1415 all the way till 1999 when Macau was officially handed over to China, which that's a pretty good run, 1415 to basically 2000. That's a pretty good run for an empire. Another example is the uh, Umayyad Caliphate. This would be a Muslim Uh, controlled empire. The capital was Damascus. It covered 5 million square miles. That's more than 8% of uh, the earth's land mass. And at its height, they controlled 30% of the world's population. It's a big empire. The Spanish empire uh, didn't last a really long time. 1740 to about 1790, 12% of the world's population uh, began in the days of Columbus. We all know Columbus. Uh, and maybe the, the biggest impact left by the Spanish Empire is the fact that today, uh, hundreds of years later, Spanish is the second most spoken language on the planet. That's because of the Spanish Empire and the far reach and influence that they had. Uh, the Russian Empire covered about 15% of the Earth's available land. It was the last absolute monarchy in Europe, if you want to lump Russia in with with the European nations, ended with the revolution in 1917. A powerful empire, still has influence today in many ways. The Mongol Empire was really impressive. This was the largest contiguous empire in human history, meaning it's not that they had colonies over here and land over here. It was everything was touching itself. The largest one that we've seen in history covered 9.15 million square miles Controlled more than 25% of the world's population. Uh, This would be Genghis Khan, uh, Khan, uniting the Mongols and the Turks and all of the tribes and clans. Uh, The British Empire. This would be technically the largest empire, the most far-reaching empire the world has ever seen. There was a saying, some of you may have heard of it, that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Because wherever the earth was turning and wherever the sun was shining, they had territory in that area. Uh, Covered at its peak... 22% of the available land mass on earth and 20% of the world's population. One that we're all familiar with would be the Roman Empire. 
uh, from 27 or so B.C. to just before 400 A.D. Uh, at its most, they controlled 70 million people, which was a lot of people back then uh, because the world's population was not as big, about 20% of the world's population. And you could argue that no other empire in human history has had as much long-lasting impact and influence as maybe the Roman Empire. Um, the Bible talks about empires rising, falling, God being involved in that, God having a hand in that. We read about Egypt. We read about Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Uh, some of those are uh, looked back upon in the Old Testament. Some of those in the Old Testament are looked forward to. Jesus was born uh, during Roman power. Um, and while we're talking about empires, we may not think of ourselves as an empire, but the United States is a pretty remarkable nation when you start to look back at uh, what some of these great empires have accomplished and the control and the, the influence they've had over the world, you'd put probably the United States right in there with any of the, any of the greats. This is a remarkable thing because our land mass is only 6% of what's available on the earth. We're not the biggest. Many empires have been much larger than us. Our population is only about 5% of the world's population, so many other empires have controlled more people. But when you think about the power of our military and maybe even greater, the power of our economy, we have incredible influence in the world. Tonight we're talking about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. When you read about it in the Gospel of Matthew, it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same idea. And we approach that word kingdom thinking of Rome and Genghis Khan and the, the stars and stripes, the, the good old U.S. of A. And we really have to sort of deprogram our minds and back up and think about what the biblical notion is of God having a kingdom. It's, it's not exactly on par with the kingdoms that we know from history and the kingdoms we experience today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a little bit of, let's call it, heavy theological lifting. Okay, And we're going to take two men. St. Augustine, maybe the greatest of all the early church fathers, the one theologian who has had more influence over Christianity, both Catholic Christianity and Protestant Christianity than any other theologian, St. Augustine, and a guy you have probably never heard of named George Ladd, George Eldon Ladd. And we're going to try to stand on their shoulders a little bit. Okay? These are two guys who had a lot to say about the kingdom of God, and they're things that we need to process before we just jump in and start talking about this prayer and we're praying that God's kingdom would come, we could very, very easily go haywire if we're not thinking about the biblical idea of God's kingdom. And so we're going to just listen to these two guys for a second, try to let them guide our thoughts and point us to Scripture, and then we're going to dig into the prayer and think about if this is what God's kingdom is, what in the world does it mean that we're praying that God's kingdom would come? So let me tell you about these two fellas. Number one, Augustine, or sometimes people call him Augustine. Uh, Augustine talked about the city of God and the city of man. And he made a, a distinction between these two. He wrote a book called The City of God where he, he lays out this distinction. Um, Augustine lived in the Roman Empire at the very end of it. I mean the tail end. He lived in the days of the Roman Empire when himself and everyone else could look around and see that everything was crumbling. 
And I don't mean buildings were crumbling, but I just mean the empire itself. It was just falling apart. Rome wasn't what it used to be. And we look back on that and we say, okay, well, Rome was crumbling. Whoop-de-doo, what does that matter? But this was a crisis for Augustine. And it was a crisis because in his life, the Roman Empire and Christianity had just almost completely been intertangled with each other. And it hadn't always been that way, right? That was not always the case. In the earliest days of Christianity, uh, the Christians were viewed very suspiciously. At times they were persecuted for their faith. Maybe you've heard about some of the things that Nero did or some of the things that Emperor Domitian did. There were emperors who at times unleashed the the power of the state against the Christians and they had to hide in the catacombs and they were sort of viewed as second-class citizens. And everybody thought they were totally unpatriotic because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So they sort of looked at them, you know, you won't say the, the Pledge of Allegiance, you won't salute the flag, you're not really... Roman citizens, and many people in Rome thought of the Christians, if you go back and read the ancient writings, they thought of them as atheists because they refused to worship all the gods of of the Roman pantheon. And they said, well, you don't believe in the gods? What, are you an atheist? And so they looked at these people as if they were very weird, very strange, very unpatriotic. At times they persecuted them. And then a Roman emperor named Constantine getting ready to fight a battle one day. And according to Constantine, he has a vision. And in the vision, he's called to convert to Christianity and submit to Jesus. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification. But basically overnight, Christianity goes from being held at arm's length, at times persecuted, to being openly accepted, and eventually becoming, in effect, like the default religion of the empire. And it happened very, very quickly. And Constantine, some people say it was a genuine conversion. Some people say no, he just he did it for his own political, military advantage. But what he did is he brought Christianity so close to the Roman Empire that at times you couldn't tell the difference between the two. They were totally intermeshed. That's when Augustine lived. And he also lived when Rome was crumbling. And if Rome is completely intertwined with Christianity in finances, in decisions, in influence, in power, in in church leaders, in religious leaders. It's all one tangled mess, and Rome's starting to fall. Augustine's looking at the situation, and he's saying, is Christianity going to go with it? If Rome goes down, does the whole thing go with it? If the empire crumbles, is Christianity going to crumble right alongside with it? And eventually, he reaches the obvious answer. We look back and think it's obvious wasn't so obvious at the time, but the obvious answer is no, Christianity is going to be just fine. Because, Augustine says, there's the city of God and there's the city of man. There's the kingdom of God that's eternal, where God's will is always done perfectly, where everything is exactly as it ought to be, And it can never be truly and fully represented by one government or one political party or one emperor or one anything. There's the kingdom of of God, the city of God, as he called it. And then there's the city of man. And the city of man is temporal. It's going to come and it's going to go. It's going to be like Egypt and then Babylon and then Assyria and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. There's just going to be one after the other. And the kingdom of God is going to endure even as these cities of man rise and fall and rise 
and fall. And he tells us something. It may seem obvious to you, but it really wasn't obvious at the time. And for many Christians today, it's not all that obvious. That you can't mix the city of man with the city of God. They're not the same. They're different cities. I want you to see where he gets this this sort of thinking from. Look in your Bible and look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. This is towards the end of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, just look at one verse, verse 20. He's talking about heavenly things and earthly things, and Paul says this in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians were very proud of their status within Rome. Paul at many points in his life, claimed privilege as a Roman citizen. But he says to the church in Philippi, you understand that our true citizenship is not in Rome. We're not Romans first. We're Christians first. That's where we truly belong. We're just passing through here. We're just passing through the city of man. And our true home, our true citizenship is in the city of God or in the kingdom of God it's in heaven. You see the same idea if you look at 1 Peter. Keep flipping to the right. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. In effect, he's talking about a kingdom. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Who's Peter talking about? Is he talking about the citizens of Rome? Absolutely not. He's talking about followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you are a nation. You are a kingdom. You are a priesthood. You belong to the city of God, not primarily to the city of man. So listen to me. Augustine you got Rome and you got Christianity, and they're like this. And Rome starts to go down. And Augustine and everybody around him says, well, I guess this is it for Christianity. What are we going to do without Rome? And Augustine hits the pause button and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's just the, Rome's just the city of man. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's the kingdom of God that's going to endure. It doesn't need Rome. It's not dependent on Rome. Look, in the United States of America, we have a complicated history when it comes to these ideas of the city of God and the city of man. And there's a decent amount in our national history that is sort of like this, right? Where Christianity sort of gets intermeshed with our our founding fathers and our constitution and some of our laws and some of our culture. But there's also a lot of other stuff that got mixed in along the way. And you and I live in a day and age, I'm not suggesting that the United States is crumbling, but we live in a day and age when maybe there's a little bit of separation on some levels, when we see some of the laws that are passed, some of the decisions that are made, and there's an awful lot of Christians who are sort of almost biting their nails anxious saying, well, what's going to happen if we don't get this law passed or we don't get this party in or this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen? What's going to happen? And we kind of need Augustine to come along and give us a kick in the seat and say, don't worry. You live in a city of man, the United States of America. That's fine. Paul lived in Rome. 
God puts you exactly where he wants you to be. But your true citizenship is in heaven. And you're a holy nation. Not Americans, but believers. You're a holy nation. You're the ones who belong to God. In this city of man, God's will is not done here perfectly. Don't expect that. Don't be disappointed when it doesn't happen. The city of God is the city that's going to last. So Augustine is very helpful for us. Look, when we start praying about a kingdom, we got to make sure that we have both of these kingdoms in mind and we know which kingdom we're praying about. Okay, we got to be focused on the kingdom of God, focused on the city of God, not necessarily, in the Lord's Prayer, on the city of man. So there's Augustine. Let me tell you about George Ladd. I love George Ladd. George Ladd explained that the kingdom of God was already and not yet. It's already here, and it's not yet here. And uh, this is one of those things in hindsight that seems really obvious. But in Ladd's day, you had two groups of theologians. You had a group of uh, liberal-leaning theologians, theologically liberal, who were talking about the kingdom of God is it's present, it's here, it's now, this is it. You had a group of conservative theologians who were saying, no, this is a disaster. The kingdom is coming in the future. So you had one say it's already here and one say it's on its way. And George Ladd walks into the middle of all of them and says, yeah, that's it. It's here and it's not here. Both of those things are true. He taught theology in California. And uh, I wish I could say he was just an an up-and-up guy. He's a guy who battled a lot of demons in his life. His story is kind of a tragic story. Um, But his influence has been as big as any theologian um, maybe in American history. Uh, one, One commentator I was reading this week said that George Ladd's Theology of the New Testament, I have it in my office, Ladd's Theology of the New Testament, outside of the Bible, is the second most important book that's ever been written by a Christian in the history of the world. It's had that much influence and that much impact on the way people think about the New Testament and think about theology. He ranked John Calvin's Institutes as number one and George Ladd's Theology of the New Testament as number two. And so Ladd says, look, the kingdom is here. It's come. We experience it now. When you're born again, you're born into this kingdom. You're a part of it. But it's not really here in the fullest sense, right? You're in it now. You experience it now. But when Christ returns, that's when the kingdom is fully here. And so he would say the kingdom has been inaugurated. We've had the inauguration. But the king has not actually come yet to rule over his kingdom. So just I want you to see this in the Bible so you don't think it's, you know, we're just buying whatever Lad says. Look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We'll just look at two examples of this. I mean, this is all the way through the Gospels. Luke 17. Starting in verse 20. Being asked by a Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, behold, for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Present tense, right now. You're, you're in the midst of the kingdom at this exact very moment in the present. That's George Ladd saying the kingdom has come. It's here, already here. 
Jesus says, you're in the midst of it right now. Then if you flip over to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And he told this parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Well, you can understand why they thought it was going to appear immediately. Jesus just said, it's here. You're in the midst of it. And they think, okay, here it is. And Jesus turns around and he tells them this parable in Luke 19. And the whole point of the parable is, it's not here yet. Don't expect it to come right now. And you leave, you, can ima- you feel the disciples' pain a little bit. I mean, they're confused about all kinds of stuff. They're saying, wait a minute, did, did I mishear him a couple days ago? Didn't he just say... It's here, and now he's saying, don't think that it's going to come right now. It's coming down the road. And Lad reminds us, yes, it's here. Jesus the King has come, and people are being born again into this kingdom. They're being made part of this holy nation, right? They're getting a new passport. Citizenship says heaven. That's happening now. But in all its fullness, the kingdom is not here yet. And it's not going to come until Jesus returns. And we've got to keep that in our mind when we start praying about the kingdom. Right? This is a kingdom we experience right now as believers. But it's also not yet fully here. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back so that we can truly and fully experience that kingdom. Okay? That's the heavy lifting. Now let's look at Matthew 6. And let's just dig in. These are the words we're talking about. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I skipped one thing. Let me give it to you on your notes so you don't get anxious. Here's the definition of the kingdom. This is important. The kingdom is made up of God's people living under God's rule. That's the kingdom. It's not about flag waving. It's not about armies. It's not about um, capital buildings. It's not about political parties. It's not about how much territory you control or what percentage of the earth's population is under your thumb or anything like that. That's not what the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is God's people living under God's rule. And if you read that definition and you're a believer, you say, well, then I'm in. I'm in the kingdom. I'm one of God's people, and I live under his authority. You're a member of the kingdom. But you also look around and say, there's a lot of people who who aren't doing that right now. And we're waiting on the day when the kingdom is going to come and be universal in its scope. So here we go. What do we mean when we start to pray about this kingdom? First of all, Jesus came preaching the good news about the kingdom of God or the good news about God's kingdom. And I'm just going to read some of these to you. The Gospel of Mark begins like this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he jumps in and he tells us about John the Baptist. And here's the first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is right here. It's right at at your fingertips. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe the gospel, and you can be part of this kingdom. 
When Jesus starts talking about a kingdom, everyone listening to him understood what he was saying. And this is what he was saying. I'm the king. The kingdom is here because I'm here. The kingdom is wherever the king is. And I've come, and so the kingdom's right here. It's right here at hand. All you have to do is repent and believe. When you start praying through the Lord's Prayer, and you pray, your kingdom come, what you're saying, if you're doing it right, is Jesus, you're the king. You have all the authority. You have every right to rule over my life. In every way, shape, and form, in every thought, in every emotion, in every word, in every action, I ought to submit to you. You're the king. He's preaching the kingdom. Next, in the transfiguration, Jesus reveals a glimpse of the kingdom. He reveals a glimpse of the kingdom. This is pretty cool. Mark chapter 9. Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. And Jesus ends the conversation like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it's come with power. You're not going to taste death till you see it with power. And people debate that and argue about that. What was he talking about? Who was he talking to? And in every one of the Gospels that includes this story, guess what comes next? The transfiguration. Jesus takes three of those guys who heard him say that right up the mountain After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. He led them up a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach him. And Elijah was there, and Moses was there, and Peter starts talking, and the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus gives him a glimpse. He says, Some of you are not going to die. Some of you standing right here are not going to die until you see it come. Then Mark says, six days later, some of those guys go up a mountain and they see it. They get this tiny glimpse of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back in all all his glory. It's not going to be like the shepherds and the angels we sang about earlier where it's out in the middle of the night and it's dark and no one knows about. It's going to be brilliant in its glory. It's going to be completely overwhelming to everyone who sees it. I mean, Peter and the guys see it and all they can do is fall down and just start babbling like fools. It completely overwhelms them. And if you're going to pray the Lord's Prayer and you're going to talk about Jesus being the king and his kingdom coming, you need to be ready for what you're asking for. You're asking for God and his glory and his kingdom, for Jesus the king to completely overwhelm you with his glory and his power and his sovereignty and his might. So we're praying to Jesus as the king. We're praying that when he comes... And that he would come now, it would be completely overwhelming. Another thought is this. The Great Commission reminds us that Jesus rules as the king. He rules as the king. The very end of Matthew's gospel ends with king language. Kingdom language. Jesus gathers the guys around him. He's died. He's been raised from the dead. And he says this in Matthew uh, 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all mine. I'm the king. Every last bit of authority belongs to me. I'm the sovereign. And based on that, you go out and you preach. 
and you make disciples. And you do exactly what I did at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He said, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is right here at your fingertips. You can be part of it if you will repent and believe. He said, you go out and you make disciples, and that's how the kingdom spreads. Liberal theologians tend to miss this. We'll pick on both sides, okay? Liberal theologians tend to say things like, God's kingdom would spread if we could just get rid of poverty. Um, God's kingdom would spread if we could just get everyone an education. God's kingdom would spread if everyone would just be treated equally. If we could just do these things, the kingdom, I mean, it would, that would be the kingdom. And there's others on the conservative side of the theological spectrum who make the mistake of saying, if we could just get this party in power and we could just pass this law and get rid of that law, which, look, I'm in favor of passing some laws, and I'm in favor of getting rid of some laws. There's some that have been passed recently that I think are abominable and need to be done away with. But some on this conservative side tend to think, if we could just legislate and control people's behavior, then the kingdom would really take off. We could just control behavior. The kingdom of God is not about controlling behavior. It's about changing hearts. It's about taking dead people and making them alive people. It's about taking people who are God's enemy and making them his children, bringing them into his family, into this holy nation where their citizenship is not just from here, but it's in heaven. And Jesus says it in Matthew 28. The kingdom is not going to spread if everyone gets a diploma and everyone has enough water and everyone has all this. That's not going to bring the kingdom. And the kingdom's not going to come if you have the best laws, biblical laws, Ten Commandment laws. That's not going to bring the kingdom. The kingdom comes when you go and you preach the gospel and you baptize people and you disciple them and you teach them to follow everything Jesus commanded. That's the kingdom. That's how it comes. So when we step back and we pray, Jesus, I want your kingdom to come. What we're saying, if you say it right, is I want you to use me to make disciples. I want you to use me to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. I want you to use me and my mouth and my abilities to evangelize people and disciple people and contribute to the mission in all of the nations so that more and more people would be brought into your kingdom. That's what you're praying when you pray your kingdom come. We're recognizing Jesus as king. We're longing for this overwhelming experience of his power and his glory. And we're praying that God would use us to make disciples. Just a few more thoughts. What does it mean when you're praying about God's kingdom? It means praying that Jesus would be recognized as king. And it means the defeat of every rival kingdom. When you start praying, when I start praying, God, I want your kingdom to come. This is a a zero-sum game. If God's kingdom comes, every other kingdom has to go. There can be no rivals can be no co-equals. We can't have two world superpowers in this game. It's God's kingdom comes, every other kingdom submits. And you could think about that in terms of political movements. You could think about that in terms of uh, ideologies. You could think about that in terms of your own little personal kingdom and the things that you want to happen in your life. When you start to pray, God, I want you to be the king and I want your kingdom to come, you're really saying, rule over me. Rule over me. Be the king. Take my kingdom and crush it to the ground. And your kingdom needs to be built. One last thought on this. 
We are praying, we pray that God's kingdom would come because we can't make it come on our own power. If there was something we could just do to make it happen, there's no sense in praying about it. You just go out and do it. But you can't bring it, and I can't bring it. You can't force God's kingdom on somebody. You can't force a person into the kingdom. You can share the gospel with them. You can pray for them. But God is the one who gives new birth. We just talked about that Sunday in John chapter 1. It's not according to our will. It's not according to our flesh. It's not according to uh, blood, our natural descent. God's the one who adopts us into his family. He gives new birth. We can't make it happen, so we're praying that God would make it happen. Okay, let's talk about God's will. What do we mean when we say, your will be done? This will be a little shorter, a little more to the point. I like this quote from James Boyce. James Boyce one of my favorites. He said, all the troubles that exist in this world exist because someone or some group of people wants a man's will or a human's will instead of the will of God. Every problem in the world is because a person or a group of people were not seeking God's will, but they were seeking their own will or a person's will. So let's talk about God's will. Theologians, they debate this. They talk about this. They distinguish between God's will of decree and His will of command. And they use God's will for both of those things. But they mean very different things. God's will of decree, uh, for example is, like Mr. R.C. Sproul used to remind us, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. God's in control of everything. He's sovereign over everything. Um, God's will of decree would be like the book of Daniel, okay, where God starts to talk about kingdoms and nations, and he says, this one's going to come next, and then this one's going to come next, and then this one's going to come next. That's how it's going to be. There's no, there's no idea in Daniel where, where God is saying, okay, here's what I think. Here's my best guess at how this is all going to play out. I'm thinking that the Persians are going to come, and then I got a really good feeling that the Greeks are going to take them out. I just, I'm, I'm going to put my money on the Greeks. It's not that. It's God saying, the Persians are going to come, and then the Greeks are going to come, And the Romans are going to come. And that is the way it's going to be. That's God's will. It's going to happen. Okay? Will of decree. He says it. It's going to happen. Then there is his will of command. So you can look up 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, God's will for you is your sanctification. It's God's will. That you be sanctified. That may or may not happen. You may or may not be sanctified. Right? Right? It might happen with some, might not happen with others. Paul says it's God's will, but there will be people who will not be sanctified. It's God saying, this is what I want for people, but it's not God decreeing that it certainly is going to happen for all people. And so there's this distinction between his will of decree and his will of command. And in the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, your will be done. And I believe, and most commentators agree, that when we pray that, we are primarily thinking about God's will of command. It's not so much that we're praying, God, you've decreed it and we want it to happen, because he's decreed it and it's going to happen. He doesn't need us to pray that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. What we're saying is, God, 
You have revealed your will for human beings, and we want people to live in light of that. You've revealed your will for me, and I want to live in, in light of that. What you can really think about this as when you say your will be done, when you pray that in the Lord's Prayer, you're taking the white flag out of your back pocket and you're waving it. And you're saying, I give up. You win. Do it your way. Do not, don't do it my way. Don't listen to me. Do it your way. In my life, I don't want to listen to myself. I don't want to listen to my friends. I don't want to listen to culture. I don't want to listen to social media. I want to listen to you. I want to do it your way. I want to follow your will. You've given us your moral will, the Ten Commandments. No other gods. No idols. Use God's name with respect. Worship once a week. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. God, I want to do that. That's your will. I want to follow that. That's what you're saying when you say your will be done. I want to live like that. Jesus said, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is right here. That's God's will that you do that. Is every last person going to do it? Every last person is not going to do it. But when you start to pray, your will be done, you're saying, not my way, your way. I'm not trying to talk you into my plans. I'm trying to submit to your plans. I'm not trying to get you on board with my agenda. I'm trying to get on board with your agenda. Here's one, one more quote from James Boyce. He says, Many people think a prayer is something that brings God into line with their own desires instead of something that brings them into line with His will. And when we start to say, Your will be done, it's just waving the white flag. I give up. I want it to be done your way, not my way. I want to follow what you want for me, not what I want for me. So look, you can roll through this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When you start to pray those things, and you pray them rightly, you're saying a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of important stuff. And it shouldn't just be something that simply rolls off your tongue without any thought or out any, uh, any, any conviction in your heart. And really the things you start to pray, when you start to pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done, that's kind of a dangerous thing to start praying. It just might happen in your life. It just might completely change everything about your life if you start to pray that. And so we're going to end with just a few thoughts from Al Mohler. He's written a book on the Lord's Prayer. We're kind of following his outline in this study. And uh, he's talking about these two phrases, your kingdom come and your will be done. And he says, when you start to pray that, this is what you're saying. You want history to come to a close. All the cities of man, let's be done with them. Let's get to the kingdom of God. Let's be done with all this stuff and let's have the kingdom. We want the nations to rejoice in the glory of God. That's how the kingdom spreads, right? When we go to all the nations, because Jesus has all the authority, and we make disciples of those people, and they're brought into the kingdom, nation after nation, people after people, tongue after tongue. We want the nations to rejoice. We want Christ to be honored in every heart. That's God's will, that Christ would be honored in every heart. And we're praying, I want that to happen, and I want it to start with me. I want you to be honored in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. You're praying that Satan would be bound and vanquished. Remember, if God's kingdom comes, every other kingdom loses. If the kingdom of light is going to win, the kingdom of darkness is going to lose. 
that God's mercy would be known through justification, that people would be saved, that God's wrath would be poured out on sin. Remember we talked about these two kingdoms, and in the kingdom of man, God's will is not always done. There's a lot of mess. When you start to pray that God's kingdom would come, in all its power and all its glory, you're saying, God, some of these kingdoms, these earthly human kingdoms deserve judgment. You're praying that every knee would bow before Jesus, waving the flag, we give up, we submit, and that the new creation would come. That new creation is the city of God. All the other kingdoms, all the other cities pass away, and God's kingdom comes.